We'll be reading Acts chapter 12, verse 25, through to chapter 13, verse 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lysias of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the Lord in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There, they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. Let me have my welcome. My name's Matt Fuller, and um, it'd be lovely to meet if we've not done so. Uh, for uh, many, though, it's a return uh, for church family. We're returning then to the book of Acts. We left off Easter, something like that, uh, and uh, now for a few weeks. And uh, in the new year, we're uh, back in the book of Acts. We'll quite finish it in this block, but um, uh, uh, another few weeks here. Let me lead us in prayer, uh, and then we'll turn to this together. Great God and Father, we we can look around the world now and know that there are millions and millions of Christians across this planet, and there are few corners where your disciples have not been to take the message of Jesus Christ. But here we are in Acts 13, and it's all just going. It's just starting to get going. Father, thank you for the record, which is, I think, interesting, even if you're a sociologist. But Father, for us here this morning, we know that this is your word. Would it shape us? Would it change us? Would we become more like that church at Antioch, so utterly determined to see a world which is in darkness, hear of the good news of Jesus Christ? Be it that work in us, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is um, uh, not particularly by design, but this is a happy passage to turn to, I think, uh, on a sort of finance Sunday, because here's what we should be doing as a church in many ways here in Acts 13. 
And if we're clear on the sort of things we should be doing as a church, that'll help us be clear on certainly what we should do with our money and raise it. So I think it's a good thing to turn to. I was struck also in the middle of the week on Wednesday, um, that's right, Wednesday, uh, the Church of England, uh, which is a, a, a mixed bag, uh, published its um, statistics, annual statistics, and of course the headline, I mean there's a few things you could say, but the headline, of course the one the newspapers want is, Church of England attendance down, uh, once again, and um, of course, this causes certain sort of hand-wringing amongst the sort of uh, church authorities. What should we do? And there are some very good ideas, um, like giving us a new curate and funding it. That's an excellent idea. So there are lots of good ideas that the Church of England has amidst the, oh, we must have more pet blessings and more candles lit um, sort of uh, 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 ideas that crop up as well. There's a mixed bag. But of course, the first thing that should happen is, well, what should we do? We should turn back to the Scriptures... And what would God have us do? And here we are in Antioch. This is a new section of the book we begin today. It goes uh, uh, really from chapter 12, verse 25, to chapter 16, verse 5. There are these markers in the book of Acts. The, the, the chapters and verses, they're imposed later. The original ones, each section ends with a phrase such as we have in verse 24 of uh, chapter 12. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. Uh, and you get another one in chapter 16, verse 5, about the church growing. So that phrase, either the word of God increased or the number of disciples multiplied, that's sort of, in the author, Luke, the original, that's his chapter headings. This section, which runs uh, chapter 12, verse 25 to 16, verse 5, the hero in many ways is, it's the church at Antioch. Not just an individual although the dominant figure does come to be Paul, but it's the church of Antioch that in one sense is the real hero because it's the center of world mission that is the only center, really, at this moment in time. Uh, historians, just secular historians, would refer to this city, Antioch, as the cradle of Christianity because it is from here that Christians for the very first time say, we need to go. Oh, they've spread previously in the book of Acts, but that's been as a result of persecution and they've not decided to do it. It's just happened to them. But here in Antioch, they say, we've got to do something. This message of Jesus Christ, we've got to take it to the world. Uh, and they do. And so all, it, Antioch is the base and, and missionaries go out and come back and go out and come back and go out and come back throughout this section. So here you'd have to say, just in historical fact, is the church that transformed the world. Let me remind you then, we're returning then to this book of Acts. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, uh, written by Luke. So Luke writes two volumes, Luke's Gospel and Acts is Luke part two. And he declares his intention right at the beginning of uh, Luke chapter one, verse one, which is he's written these books that the readers might have, quote, certainty of the things they were taught. So that's Luke's agenda. I want you to have certainty of the things you've taught and been heard. So confidence, certainty, that's Luke's agenda. Confidence of the truths of the faith. Confidence that Jesus is being, building his kingdom and it's unstoppable. I 
scribble down again at the bottom of your uh, sheets there, the, the, the structure, those are the sort of main blocks of the book of Acts. You can see then in 1225 to 16.5, it's really the church planning trips to take the good news to the Gentiles. That's the content or that's the sort of subject. The main theological issue, we'll get to it in the next couple of weeks, the theological issue is what do Gentiles need to do to be saved? Do they need to keep Old Testament laws? Do they need to become like Jews? How do the Gentiles? Anyway, we'll get to that. That's the theological issue. But today it's quite simple. We want to be a church like this one in Antioch. Christchurch, this is what we want to be like. Not passive, not bewildered by strategy or approach, but three little simple things, I think. You want to send off your leaders, expect opposition, and trust God's word, okay? Send off your leaders, expect opposition, and trust God's word. That's what we want to be like. Let me take them in turn then. First of all, uh, just these first three verses, you want to send off your leaders. We'll probably spend half our time here, actually. Now, here we are in Antioch. We met the church in Antioch back in chapter 11. Uh, 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 Christians have stumbled into Antioch, and uh, people there have become Christians. In fact, it's the first place in the world that they're called Christians, rather than followers of the Galilean or whatever it may be. And if you just, you can glance back with your eyes, don't need to turn, but chapter 11, verse 25, Barnabas had been the key man who'd uh, discovered the Christians, uh, verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who would become the apostle Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So it's a city where lots and lots of people have become Christians. Well, here we are. We return to them. In, we return in, uh, well, let's pick it up in chapter 13. And, uh, well, there's clearly growing maturity here, and there's fabulous ethnic diversity in the church at Antioch. So uh, chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Come back to that. Uh, Barnabas, well, we know uh, him. He's come there from Cyprus. Simeon, called Niger, or, or, um, or just literally the black. So presumably there's two Simeons in the church. Uh, I'm going to see Simeon. Which one? Black Simeon, not white Simeon. I guess, guess that's, what it, that's why he's got that sort of name attached to him. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene, that's Libya, uh, as it would be today. So diversity there. Menaean, well, he's had an impressive upbringing. He grew up in the family of Herod, the Tetrarch, uh, back in the Jerusalem region. Literally, he was the foster brother. So you got, uh, and there's Saul, who's come from Tarsus. So you've got all sorts of an ethnic mix, a sort of wealth mix, someone who's grown up in a palace. Extraordinary diversity here. We're told these are the leaders, or they're the prophets and teachers. What's the difference between those two? Luke doesn't say. They clearly have a foundational role in building the church. Luke doesn't define them. Paul elsewhere would say the church is built upon the prophets and apostles. This is foundational role in these prophets, but it isn't clear. What's obvious is they're the leadership team. And what does this team do when they get together? Well, verse 2, while they were worshipping, I think that's probably the five, given it comes straight afterwards, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they'd placed their hands on them and sent them off. 
Now, there's quite a lot of details missing here that we might want to have. Let me ask some questions. Um, What are Barnabas and Saul set apart to do? We're not told. If all of a sudden tonight, uh, tonight, this morning, uh, uh, a voice descended and it said, set apart Simon and Mark for the work I've chosen. You might want to ask the question, what have you chosen? (laughs) Uh, We'd like to obey, but... So presumably that's obvious to them. So I I think it must be their thinking, what are we going to do, church at Antioch? What are we going to do next? We've become Christians here. We need to, other people need to hear about Jesus Christ. How should we go about that? So presumably that's the context. Um, How are they told that it's uh, Barnabas and Paul? The Holy Spirit said, or how does that happen? Again, we're not told. Is that one of the prophets says, look, I've got a word from the Lord. It's going to be Barnabas and Saul. Is it that the five of them are praying and they sit around and go, well, what do we think? Well, I think Barnabas and Saul. 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 We all think Barnabas and Saul. Um, and there's a sort of common conviction comes upon them. I don't know. We're not told. And who sends them out? Well, on one hand, obviously, it's God does. Because God the Holy Spirit says, Barnabas and Saul must go. And yet at the same time, verse 3, it's the church. After they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And when uh, at the end of this section in chapter 14, verse 25, uh, Barnabas and Saul returned to the church at Antioch, the end of Paul's first first missionary journey, it's obvious that the church had sent them out. So lots that we don't quite understand here, but clearly... There's a, there's a leadership team. They're praying about what should they do? What should they do next? Uh, somehow the conviction comes upon them that these two have got to go. And so the church therefore says, well, overall, what do we think? Is that a good idea? We think that's a good idea. Okay, these two will send them off. Now, practically, what are we to do with something such as this? Well, let me, let me chuck out, I think, four natural things which would flow from this. A plan. Well, let me do, let me run through them. So, first, the Church of Antioch that they did plan will be the first thing. Here is the launch of the first overseas mission trip that any Christians do in history. First time any Christians plan this. There is deliberate thought that goes into it. So they're very earnest about this, aren't they? Verse two. They're worshipping the Lord and fasting. Verse 3, they're praying and fasting. Now, I don't know how many fasters there are amongst us, but in the Scriptures, you never do that just on its own. You never do it just to go without. It's always getting out your highlighter pen and saying, I'm serious about this. So when you worship and fast, I'm serious about this. When you pray and fast, Lord, we're really serious about this is kind of the sense of it. Um, It's an adding intensity to your activity. So they're very deliberate. Look, what are we going to do next? And we want to get this right. So we fast and we pray. It's not just self-denial for the sake of it. So their their planning will be one thing. A a second thing they do is, is they send. We should do something. God says, send off Barnabas and Saul. And the church says, well, okay, we'll pray about this and... Off we go. That's why I think it's probably a sort of common sense comes upon this leadership team. 
Because if it was God booming a voice, send Saul and Barnabas, well, we're just going to pray about that, Lord. See if you're right. doesn't really make sense as an activity. That's why I think it's probably a, a common conviction that settles upon the team here, I think. Uh, I wouldn't fight about it. But they send. They're looking to send. And I think any healthy church is going to be seeking to, how do you phrase it, discern whether there are a number in it. Well, discern God's plan and God's ministry for any individual, every single person in church, but also discern are there some who should go. I think it's any healthy church should be thinking about that. Are there some who should switch from secular employment to sort of vocational ministry? So certainly here as a church, we're always wondering, are there some who should do that, who should make that switch? Whether to do it in the UK or go overseas. That's why we do put quite a lot of effort into the the apprenticeship or the ministry trainee scheme. Whatever it is, 67 who have done that here now and the finances that requires. And then if you send people off to theological college, that's very expensive. But yeah, I think the elders at Antioch would say, well, yeah, of course you want to do that. That's just natural, isn't it? For a healthy church. There is a tea on the 2nd of December if anyone's interested in going into vocational ministry, come along to that. Um, but I think that's very natural. So they plan, they send... Another thing, they send their best. Barnabas and Saul are the two that are going to get sent off. Remember, for the last year, they'd been the Bible teachers in Antioch. They'd been the two that had shaped this church from people who didn't know anything to a fairly mature church wanting to send others out. So you can imagine how this sort of, perhaps the rumor sort of gets out at Antioch. There's chatter, it's going to be Barnabas and Saul, and um, everyone in the congregation is, well, we're going to send some people to, uh, to take the gospel, oh, that's good. We're going to send Barnabas and Saul, that's who they're talking about, we're not them. Well, anyway, we can't, we can't survive without them. We need them. Don't send them, for goodness sake. Send Philip, send Manaean. he's kind of annoying anyway. Um, send him, but not, not Barnabas and Saul. I mean, they've built the church. We can't do without them. No, they sent their best. So I think the obvious application is you need to send me on holiday to Cyprus. No, no, sorry, that was the, um, it's not right, <laughs> clearly not right. That's, you know, don't, I think the attitude must be a willingness to send away your best. And of course, whenever we get someone who's like a ministry trainee, they leave their secular job and work for the church for a couple of years then you send them off to Bible college and then they go to wherever it is, Manchester and you think, well they were great why do we keep sending all the great people away or you do a church plant to Haringey and who goes well lots of the people who've been at church longest, who are most committed you know the amount of times I'd pray, Lord I want a gang of about 30 to 40 to go to Haringey but not them, not them, not them, not them not them, not them, not them and of course it turned out to be them and them and them and them uh, although lots of the not thems are still here today, and that's um... <laughs> sorry, easy line. But it's costly 
it's costly to send away people you love and people who are most dedicated. And, and mo- it's costly. It hurts. And now we're starting to talk, let's do it again in, in four years' time. But I think the elders at Antioch would say, well, that's right. That's right. Go again. So, so they had a plan to send their best. Uh, and last little thing, they do so while maintaining their base in the city. I don't want to overstretch this as a point. But Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time. Uh, the only one that has streetlights burning all night long, if that excites you. But uh, it's cosmopolitan port, it's trading in luxury goods, all sorts of nationalities there. Uh, in the rest of this book of Acts, of course, the gospel spreads as they go to city bases. And so for the next, this section, it's dominated by Antioch, is, is the center for missions. And, and then we sort of move to Ephesus, is the center. Eventually you get to Rome, which becomes uh, a base of operations over time. But that is just sensible. Because they're the centers to reach the rest of the region. And so again, even for us, you've got to maintain, you can't send everyone. You need to strengthen the city in order to resource everything else. The capacity to influence cross-culturally, influence generations is enormous for us gathered here. So at the beginning of the first missionary journey ever in history, here's the church at Antioch, and they plan to send their best from the city base. That's what they do. So look, there's the first. Uh, Send off your leaders is uh, one mark of the church. Two others, then. Uh, You've got to expect opposition and trust God's word to bring light. Second little thing then, to expect opposition. Expect that uh, to come. Verse 4 of chapter 13. The two of them then, uh, Saul and Barnabas, they sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia, south there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Let's have a map. Everyone loves a map. Um, here then is uh, uh, the first missionary journey ever. So there we are. We go out in red. We come back in blue. So there we are. We start in Antioch in Syria. Um, which uh, very conveniently is modern-day Syria. Um, unusual in, Bi- in Bible, <laughs> Bible maps, but that helps. Uh, obviously, they go to Cyprus, uh, and then up into what's modern-day Turkey, uh, Perga, Adelaide. Uh, annoyingly, there's another Antioch, always disappointing when um, uh, you get two places called the same. Um, uh, a bit confusing, and then they go out, and they come back, and they retrace pretty much the same route uh, on, on the way back. Perhaps leave that up there, it's helpful. So here we are on the first journey, and where do they go first? Well, you, it's, 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 you're Antioch. Right, we've got to take the gospel. Where should we go? Barnabas and Saul are going to go. Right, Barnabas and Saul, where are you going to go? Barnabas says, uh, I know Cyprus really well, that's where I was born. Great. Um, there may be something more spiritual than that, but it may just be a place they know. So off they go. Now on this tour or journey, six cities, the main blobs, that's where they visit. But in this First journey, chapter 12, verse 25 to 14, 25. Three incidents get highlighted. There's this one here on Cyprus with uh, the magician or the sorcerer. Uh, and then there's a speech uh, to a Jewish audience. And then there's a speech to a Gentile audience. So three things, uh, and those are the main things we'll look at in the next few weeks. 
three get highlighted. So why this? What is highlighted in this story on Cyprus? Well, it seems to be opposition. And it's opposition from the worst of Judaism, this strange sorcerer, magician. Pick it up, verse 6. So they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. And there, Saul and Barnabas, they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, mayor-type figure, uh, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So they meet two men then. This Jewish sorcerer, that's very unusual. Very unusual for a a Jewish man to be dabbling in such things. But the Jewish sorcerer and his master, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, the ruler, the mayor, you might say, of, uh, of Cyprus. Now the proconsul, well, he's an intelligent or inquisitive, you could translate it, man. He wants to hear the word of God. Clearly this is what Paul and Barnabas are known for. Verse 5, they would been proclaiming the word of God. And now uh, the proconsul wants to hear the word of God. And it's that that provokes the reaction from this sorcerer. So verse 8, Elymas the sorcerer opposed them when they were teaching the word of God. And what, did he, what does he want to do? He tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. I'm intrigued. I don't know why it gets translated differently, but this turn the proconsul from the faith, verse 8, it's precisely the same word in verse 10, perverting the right ways of the Lord. To turn someone away from the word of God is to pervert the ways of the Lord. To say, oh, you can be a follower of God, but not like that is to pervert the ways of the Lord. Now that is a word that many in the Church of England need to hear. To ignore the word of God, to close the word of God, to turn people away from the word of God, equals perverting God's ways. That's what he's doing. But... um, uh, strike these, opposition comes. Now, this is just at the beginning of the missionary journey, and we'll see this whole section, 1425 to chapter 16, verse 5, opposition just goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up. Here it begins, but I think that's why this story is highlighted. As I say, six cities, only three stories get told, one here, one city in Antioch, uh, and the, 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 the final one, Lystra. But um, opposition is what's highlighted, because I think Luke is saying to his audience, just be prepared that in this first missionary journey, the first thing that happens is they're opposed. Don't be surprised. It'll come from magicians and strange characters like that. It'll come from Orthodox Jews here in in the book of Acts. But in a timeless sense, don't be surprised that when the message of Jesus Christ comes, people say, I'm not sure about that, or I don't like that. When the message comes that actually you're in trouble before the Lord, but, but he wants to 
save people. He sent his son to save people. You just need to say help. You just need to say, I trust Jesus rather than myself. Well, people won't like that. There'll always be some who oppose it very strongly, timelessly. He's striking. This first missionary journey, out they go in red and, and back they come in blue. You, you might think, well, why not take another route? Why not get to Derby and just keep on going round back to Antioch? You could meet more people. You could chat to more people. You could visit new cities. Why go backwards? I mean, all of us like a circular walk. None of us like a walk out and a walk back. I mean, why would you do that? Um, well, we're told explicitly why they do that and why they come back. You just turn over one page, chapter 14. Actually, it's two pages. Chapter, no, it's one page. Chapter 14, verse 21, bottom of page 1109, bottom corner, the return. We're told that um, Paul and Barnabas, they preached the gospel in that city. They won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. Why did they do so? Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Here's how they encouraged them. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. You just need to know that, say Paul and Barnabas. Okay, and, and you've become Christians. Great. Let me just let me just pop back and say, look, is everyone is everyone is everyone delighted? You're Christians now. No, I can't. It kind of always goes that way. So let me encourage you with the truth that it's through many hardships you enter the kingdom of God. Not everyone will always be happy. The church that's going to change the world has to expect opposition. One of my little heroes uh, in the Christian faith is William Carey. I mean, he's not a little hero, he's a giant. Uh, but um, William Carey, many will know, he was the first man who took the gospel to India in 1793. The first native he saw become a Christian was in the year 1800. For seven years, he preached three or four times every day. He was attacked, he was stoned, he was taunted, he was beaten up on numerous occasions three times a day. For seven years, he's preaching the gospel and not a single person, native, Indian, becomes a Christian. You and I might be tempted to give up and think, I don't think we're meant to be here. Seven years. I mean, say it quickly and it's two words. Live it. It's seven years. It's a long time. But he doesn't give up. And then many, many people did become Christians. Because he must have understood this. You expect opposition. You don't give up when it comes. Uh, give away or send away your leaders. Uh, expect opposition. Last little thing. You have to trust God's word to bring light. Trust God's word. What did you make of Paul's response? To Elimas. Let me pick it up perhaps from verse 8. Uh, Elimas the sorcerer, for what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, verse 9, said, um, Elimas, let's go and have a cup of coffee and talk this through. He didn't quite say that. Verse 9, Paul, filled with the Spirit, looked at Elimas and said, Golly, you're a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that's right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Ouch. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. 
Collie. I guess we need to partly just recognize here's a big moment in the book of Acts. It symbolizes, it is, Saul, the, the, the Jewish Pharisee, verse 9, who is also called Paul. This is the first time he's called Paul, and now he's called Paul from this point onwards. So this is Luke saying, there's a, there's a shift of gears now. And this Sergius Paulus, he's the first Gentile with no Jewish background, with no sympathies, not even a God-fearer or anything. He's a complete pagan. He's never heard anything about Jesus. So he's the first of that sort of Gentile to become a Christian. And Saul is going to become Paul, the, the missionary to the, the Gentiles. It's a big moment, this. I think that's why it's quite so dramatic. Paul is filled with the Spirit, which some will recall when we looked at the first 11, 12 chapters. When you're filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts, it always produces boldness. That's what it means. That's what happens. He denounces Elimas then and serves judgment. Although you do need to bear in mind, verse 11, you're going to be blind for a time. For a time. Elimas, you're going to be given a chance to change your mind here. A chance to repent. Can you think of anyone else in the book of Acts who opposed the Lord and then was blinded for a time? Well, of course, that was Paul's experience in chapter 9. I don't know if there's some of that going on here. Elimas, I'll tell you what did me a load of good, being blinded and a chance to think about it. Have a load of that and um, see if you come to your senses. There may be some of that, perhaps, going on. There's certainly anger. You're trying to Prevent the word of the Lord being spoken. That's perverting God's ways. But do notice at the end what happens in verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at Paul's power. No. He was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. I don't think we'd expect that at the end of this encounter. You know, this magician who everyone is slightly scared of. Perhaps you've got Darth Vader in your courtroom who sort of strangles people um, just by going like that with his hands and and makes things fly around the room. And everyone's a bit intimidated by uh, Elimas. Uh, And then Paul says, oh, shut up and be blind. And he's blinded. You might think, wow, you're the most powerful man in town. You're Yoda to this, whatever. Um, You know, you're the most powerful... No, it's the teaching. Verse 12, he believed, why? For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, no doubt the, 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 the dramatic underlines the teaching, but that's the emphasis. This first missionary journey, wherever they go, verse 5, they proclaim the word of God. Verse 7, the proconsul wants to hear the word of God. Verse 12, he believes because he's amazed by the teaching, by the word of God. So Luke is saying here, on this first first missionary journey, it's the word of God that is the key. That is how a spiritually blind Roman leader has his eyes opened. And indeed a physically sighted magician loses his sight. It's the word of God that opens blind eyes. So don't lose your faith in that. The question here is not where do we find displays of dramatic supernatural power. It's what is the teaching that opens blind eyes? 
It is the word of God. As many here have found, just reading through simple studies in John's gospel, uncover them. Oh yeah, okay, I see. I want to become a Christian. Or reading all their way through one of the gospels. Okay, I see. I understand. Now I want to follow this man, Jesus Christ. But don't lose your confidence in the word of God as the key to people having their eyes opened. Our lunchtime talks that we do uh, uh, on a Tuesday, someone there recently said, um, oh, look, I don't understand what you're doing. What you need to do is you you need to tell people about the the, the benefits of becoming a Christian. Just tell them lots about how good it is. Uh, Only when people have become Christians do you open the Bible and, and try and teach them the Bible. So you have a strategy for people becoming Christians and then one for how you help them grow up. No, says Luke. No, 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 you, you, you've, you've lost all confidence there. No, you need to teach the word of God. That's what opens blind eyes. So here in Acts 13, here at the beginning of the church that changes the, the course of world history, I mean, that is just true empirically. Here's the church that we want to be like. Uh, willing to give away, expecting opposition, trusting the word of God to open blind eyes. So let me just put that negatively. Here's what we cannot be, okay? Here's the opposite. So we cannot be a church unwilling to give away, a church which is shocked by opposition when it comes, a church which loses confidence in the word of God to open blind eyes. You can't be that. That's what we can't be according to Acts 13. But when we are willing to give away of our best, when we know that opposition will come, It will. But when we're trusting God's word to open blind eyes, that's how Jesus builds his church. That's how he goes about it. That's how the message of God's extraordinary love for a world that opposes him reaches people who would never hear. You've got to be willing to give away. You've got to expect opposition. You've got to trust the word of God. Don't give up on that. And Jesus builds his church. Let's pray together. Hey, great God and Father, we thank you. In many ways, it's just fun to read this record of the church meeting, the elders meeting here at Antioch and the church backed them to send people overseas were it not for their adventure led by you. None of us here in the UK will be Christians. No one from the the States or Australia or Singapore or Malaysia, none of them will be Christians. So, Father, thank you for your work in these individuals. Thank you for your work in this church. And would we be a church like them, willing to give away of our best, fully prepared for opposition, trusting in your word to open the eyes of the blind, trusting that it's when people meet Jesus in the scriptures that they realize that we have to follow him. Father, would we be this sort of church, we ask, so we're useful in your service. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.